0: this podcast was brought to you by our supreme boilers of leather the elton dane the new sword of the morning morgan and kate Katchka. if you want to find out how to become a supreme boiler of leather or if you want access to all the cool bonus materials we offer head over to patreon.com slash boiled leather audio hour
1: Finally, he looked north. He saw the wall shining like blue crystal, and his bastard brother John sleeping alone in a cold bed, his skin growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him. And he looked past the wall, past endless forests cloaked in snow, past the frozen shore and the great blue-white rivers of ice and the dead plains where nothing grew or lived. North and north and north he looked, to the curtain of light at the end of the world, And then beyond that curtain. He looked deep into the heart of winter, and then he cried out, afraid, and the heat of his tears burned on his cheeks. Now you know, the crow whispered as it sat on his shoulder. Now you know why you must live. Why? Bran said, not understanding, falling, falling. Because winter is coming. Bran looked at the crow on his shoulder, and the crow looked back. It had three eyes, and the third eye was full of a terrible knowledge. Bran looked down. There was nothing below him now but snow and cold and death, a frozen wasteland where jagged blue-white spears of ice waited to embrace him. They flew up at him like spears. He saw the bones of a thousand other dreamers impaled upon their points. He was desperately afraid. Can a man still be brave if he's afraid? He heard his own voice saying, small and far away. And his father's voice replied to him, That is the only time a man can be brave. Now, Bran, the crow urged, choose, fly or die. Death reached for him, screaming. Bran spread his arms and flew. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Boiled Leather Audio Hour. My name is Sean T. Collins. I'm a television critic for such publications as Vulture, Decider, Rolling Stone and The New York Times, you know that drill. And joining me, as always, is my illustrious co-host, Stefan
0: Sasse, whose drill you already also know.
1: And today we are returning to one of my favorite things that we've ever done on this podcast, the A Song of Ice and Fire's greatest hits. And this hit today was selected by DJ Stefan Sasse and He selected Bran's dream from A Game of Thrones, which we couldn't read the whole thing of because it's an entire chapter, Uh, a very, very good chapter. Um, But Stefan selected that particular passage. And I guess just to get started, I was wondering
0: why. Bran's dream from A Game of Thrones is a weird thing in today's discourse about A Song of Ice and Fire. And there are several reasons for that, but one of them is this look at the heart of winter and all that surrounds it because it is still so mysterious and we do not know what it means. I will talk a little bit more about the meta level of it all uh, when we later go into uh, the nitty-gritty of this uh, podcast. But the ideas that are communicated here just resonate with me quite a lot. And this is something that I feel only opens at reread. Because when you read this for the first time, you have no clue what the heart of winter is. And it is specifically not mentioned what he sees. You know, Uh, the crow just says, now you know, and Bran screams. And then we we are at other imagery, like the impaled dreamers uh, on the spikes and stuff. And it is all like like a big drug dream uh, in a way. And you can piece together what it actually means. What this is about only when we get to uh, a dance with dragons and we meet Bloodraven uh, in the cave and we get all the information from Jojen and stuff like that. Only then are we able to really read this dream. And I think this is the only passage from A Game of Thrones about which this is true. The book, I mean. And so this is... Um, This has a special place. And on the other hand, it's the OG. I mean, this is the first drippy dream and prophecy chapter uh, that we get in the whole story. And, of course, it's overshadowed by uh, the House of the Undying, which we haven't done yet. But um, that's, I think, why I wanted specifically. And third uh, thing why I chose it, uh, Bran uh, is and remains my favorite character of the whole series. So... I want you to give him a spotlight here. Well, amen to that. It's a tremendous
1: chapter. Uh, Brand's a favorite of mine too, honestly. And I think you're right. There's such an interesting tension in this in this chapter. Because first of all, it is our real, if I'm not mistaken, our first real glimpse of prophecy and of visions and of dreams and these things that wind up taking on a lot of importance as the series progresses. And as you say, it feels in many ways uh, sort of like a dress rehearsal for The House of the Undying, which takes a lot of the principles And techniques that Martin establishes in this chapter, glimpses of the future referred to in sort of surrealistic imagery. Um, you know, just the the very concept of having visions and having prophetic visions at all, and really runs with it and and makes it much more central to the narrative because of the the um, the whole plethora of of clues and hints and mysteries that are in the House of the Undying that. Uh, there's so many of them that you can read the whole rest of the series just with that part in mind and and be constantly finding new information that connects to that. That's not really the case here. Um, you know, it, it's pretty clear that, you know, he's referring to the Hound in one case and Jamie in one case. And while there's um, a lot of controversy about this, I guess even still, uh, the third evil figure in King's Landing has to be the Mountain, right? So, uh, but that's the, the kind of thing that we couldn't really figure out until we get a sense of what becomes of the mountain after Kyburn um, gets his hands on him. So, you know, a lot of this information doesn't really come into play, as you said, until much later, like when we meet Blood Raven, then we get a little more information about what's actually going on. But again, as you say, there's a tension between all the stuff that we we do find out about or that we can sort of surmise, oh, well, this means this and this means this and this means this. And the the heart of the chapter, which is the heart of winter, which the Crow sees and Bran sees and George R.R. R. Martin sees, but we don't get to see. And at no point in the future does Bran describe it. So it's still a huge mystery. And it's, I don't remember if there's anything in the text to suggest that Bran remembers what he sees there when he's awake. But at any rate, this information is present in his brain the same way that who threw him out the window is present in his brain. And he can't bring himself to address that, but it's there and it's a ticking time bomb. And I think the same is true with The Heart of Winter. Eventually, I assume, we're going to find out what's going on in there and it's not going to be pretty. But it's, it's right now, it's this huge mystery that's still hanging over the series to this day. And it's, it's maybe the most important thing in the whole, you know, from, from a, um, a fantasy perspective, let's say, uh, that's Mordor, right? And, like, we have no idea what's going on in Mordor. We don't know, is there a black tower? Is there a big volcano? You know, like, we have no clue. No clue beyond the ice spikes. So um, it leaves so much to the imagination in such an intriguing way. And it is also... Speaking of fantasy, I think really one of the first mainline doses of fantasy that you get in this series also. Obviously, you had the others and the Whites in the prologue, but the the book moves so rapidly away from that that you know it became famous for what it became famous for early on, which was being like a grim and gritty, down to earth um, revisionist epic fantasy. This is actual epic fantasy, is what we're getting here. And it comes as a huge uh, surprise, and a big change in tone, a very welcome one, because it enlivens the book. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just kind of rambling, but uh,
0: there's so much to say about this chapter. No, you are absolutely true. And I want to uh, add a little bit on this mortal reference you are making, because I think from this scene stem a lot of predictions, at least earlier predictions before season eight uh, of Game of Thrones came out. Uh, There was a very widely accepted theory that the series would more or less end with the three heads of the dragon flying to the heart of winter and destroying it, and maybe one or several of them dying in the process. I don't know if this is still in the cards, And I think the series has fallen out of favor a little bit. But The Heart of Winter remains this nugget from A Game of Thrones that is, to this day, completely unresolved. I want to stress this, because I think we have very uh, convincing theories on most other things that are uh, in the text at this point. There is a little bit of um, disagreement going on about which of these theories are correct or which are better, uh, but it is not like there is a general not understanding about stuff. But this remains uh, a mystery. And it uh, you're right, it never comes up again. Uh, Bran doesn't officially remember it. Of course, we have so few Bran chapters that it is difficult to say whether or not he remembers it in between chapters. But I do not have the the impression that he does. And I do base this impression on the, let's say, the narrative purpose uh, of this dream in regards to the political plot that you just mentioned. Because one would be really amiss if one only saw this as this like prophetic magic drug dream, basically. Because it also has a serious uh, implication for the plot itself. One which I think gets forgotten, especially since in the series the dream doesn't come up at all. It is in this dream that Bran willfully forgets that he saw Jamie Lannister and Cersei Lannister fucking, which is a hugely important plot point because even if um, uh, Catelyn would get back to Winterfell, which is her original plan, and get uh, Bran to testify before the whole of the realm, uh, you know, to, to solve the War of the Five Kings, it wouldn't work because Bran doesn't remember. And uh, he doesn't remember because... He chooses to in this very dream. And this is also something that you will easily read over on your first read. And I do remember I, um, once, it's years ago, but I did a Game of Thrones in school with uh, ninth graders and we read the book and we talked about it. And this was the chapter that left everyone flummoxed, like they didn't understand a single thing. And we went through it like piece by piece and it was like a whole world open for them, you know, how, can, how you can interpret all of that stuff. And uh, the, the function of this chapter is the the int- uh, one one of the interesting things on a meta level uh, that i want to talk about uh, because martin constructed this in order to um in order to jumpstart or at least put on tracks at uh, the political plot we've talked about this before i think that a game of thrones is the most constructed Uh, of the five novels released so far. Um, A lot of the plot uh, runs on rails and is very contingent on uh, events just happening as the author intended. You know, Martin's thumb on the scales is never so visible as it is in the Game of Thrones. And this is one of the examples. We have a supernatural influence making Bran forget the inciting incident of the whole War of the Five Kings which is huge and just just to give an understanding of what is happening here actually bran has this dream um in which he talks to what we now know is blood raven the three-eyed crow and the three-eyed crow is accompanying him through his mental dreamscape in which he is um, kind of working out his issues. That's why he sees uh, Jamie Lannister floating before him. But it also gives him prophecies and it also allows him to green see. And all of these elements flow together. Uh, for example, the three persons that you mentioned uh, in which we also yet have to identify uh, is more or less a prophecy. Then the look at the heart of winter is green seeing more or less. He's flying way up high like hundreds and thousands of kilometers uh, above the ground and having this real bird's eye perspective on everything. He's like a U2 uh, going uh, going up there uh, and, and making all these images. He just cannot remember them, so he, he forgot his camera or something. Uh, and uh, all of this is blended together to give us information which we cannot use at this point. Which, which is a bold decision. And as you mentioned, it is a break from the tone of everything else that is going on, which is why, especially on a first read, it feels like uh, like something alien uh, to the story. It doesn't come up again. Uh, and since Bran has to forget everything, and I will get as to why he has to forget in a moment, uh, it cannot come up again. Not until The Clash of Kings, when uh, George and Amira show up. So this is a weird structural decision by George. And so uh, why does Brian have to forget? Um, uh, Blood Raven, the three-eyed crow, wants him to concentrate on the greater mission, which is stopping whatever is at the heart of winter. And the thing is, this is difficult under the best circumstances. And the proof for that is the other dreamers impaled on pikes. And I guess... We will get um, into this a-, a little later. Just put a pin in it for now. A lot of other people have tried this as well, and they died in their dream, which men- which means you are also dying in reality. So that's that point. And you need to fully concentrate uh, to be able to do this. And you need to become a vessel for uh, the powers that are. Uh, basically, you need to shut out uh, the-, the interference. And this is what he does here for the first time. And I guess uh, in Blood Raven's cave, Bran will learn to shut out the rest of the world in quite a similar way, uh, which will lead to a similar character to what we see in the Game of Thrones TV show, who is much more detached uh, from what's going on. This is the very first time he does it. Uh, and it seems to be a prerequisite to achieve the powers that Bloodraven views as necessary to do whatever he deems necessary. We don't know yet. Uh, all of it is still hanging in the air. And this chapter is the very first instance. If you map out uh, in your head, kind of a map uh, of chapters uh, and and make a dot or a pin uh, in every chapter that's on this storyline, it is interspersed throughout the five books in like, let's say four or a maximum of five chapters total. And this is the greatest story thread that Martin pulls uh, and weaves and it is breathtaking in its ambition, frankly.
1: Yeah,, um, you know, I think the thing that impressed us all when we first started reading a Game of Thrones is it's a combination of the volume of stuff and how he is able to make things seem important and then not follow up on it at all forever but you still feel like oh that was very important i got to file that one away for future reference and um <clears throat> this dream wh- you know which as you say like you know really kind of comes out of nowhere and it-, it is such a gutsy structural decision because you know and i think there's a reason why the show did away with it i mean we used to talk about this frequently the show started very much in the wake of lost and the lesson a lot of people learned from lost is that When you introduce a lot of mysteries, that's going to be all that people care about. They're not going to focus on anything else. They're just going to want the answers to the mysteries. So the show jettisoned it entirely. And I think wisely, I think that worked out for them. Um, But Martin is leaning into it right here at the beginning of, uh, you know, what at the time, I guess, was a proposed trilogy. I don't know. I don't know where it stood by the time he got to this portion of the writing. he doesn't have that fear. He wants you to be guessing because I think he counts on his ability to keep you invested in the rest of the story, the rest of the material, the more down-to-earth things. And you know, and again, to get back to the prologue, he doesn't right away. He introduces the, the the others and the Whites in the first chap, in the first chapter of the first book, and then. For most of the book, they vanish as a consideration, and they're they're tangential to the, the the vast majority of the rest of the books. He's not afraid to shove in these big ideas and then just sort of let them breathe and let them sit in the mind of the reader where you can kind of turn it over and over and around and around in your head like it's a Rubik's cube and try and solve it but you're not going to be able to in the, until the books are finished you know and that's always been my attitude like I'm not going to drive myself crazy trying to deduce and decipher everything like eventually we'll find out right now it's fun to be intrigued it's fun to be a little bit confused um the other thing that you said that I I want to draw attention to is that this is blood raven manipulating things and one of the things he manipulates is he he, he essentially gives Bran the chance to forget what happened to him, which has real-world consequences. Had he woken up and said, oh, it was Jaime Lannister did it because he was having sex with his sister, the Queen, you'd have no story, right? Like, that would be the end of it. Um, Blood Raven needs things to go a certain way, so he can't allow that to happen. You know, blood Raven's up to a lot of stuff, you know i I remain convinced that it was he who got the direwolf south of the wall. Um, yeah, and it, it's it's interesting to think of in that way too. And that's something you have no way of knowing until four books later. so uh it, it's 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 besides being interesting writing from a prose perspective and besides being interesting writing from a plot perspective. It's interesting, and besides being interesting writing from a fantasy perspective, it's interesting writing from a structural perspective because it's setting up things that will not get paid off forever, and Martin does that a lot, and I think it's much of what we love about this series. If if all of the mysteries had been solved in quick succession, I don't think people would still be talking about these books. Now it's not just the mysteries that matter to people for me it's actually rather minor but it does give a, it does add a lot of oxygen to the discussion of these books a discussion that continues to this day despite the fact that they started coming out in the 90s you know so um yeah it's impressive work in in a, in a whole variety of ways that you just outlined
0: I want to add a little bit now on the second meta level you already kind of mentioned it, which is how much did Martin even know himself what all of this means? And this is what's really impressive about this chapter, because I think not a whole lot, not a whole lot. The thing is, what we know from the writing process of A Game of Thrones and the other books, he planned them originally as a trilogy. We talked about uh, this on this very podcast like years ago when the original pitch letter came out. Uh, and we analyzed that. Uh, but just to reiterate a little bit, Martin wrote a pitch letter to his a- for his agent uh, to shop around the book, in which he described what he then planned to happen in this trilogy of books. And one of the many things was uh, that Jon and Tyrion would compete uh, for the love of Arya, and I mean, sexual love. So take that. And uh, Tyrion would burn down Winterfell, and Jamie Lannister would become king, <laughs> and all of this weird stuff that is certainly not going to happen. But this is the context in which he most likely wrote this chapter. And we also know, more or less for certain, like with 99% confide- uh, confidence, that Bloodraven, the whole uh, Blackfires, and all of that wasn't invented when he wrote the Game of Thrones. He um, he created the Blackfires in between books um, b- uh, when he was writing A Clash of Kings, where he first mentions them, uh, and he also didn't yet create them when he wrote The Hedge Knight, in which the uh, the Blackfires simply do not exist, and this strongly suggests that he had no idea who the Three Eyed Crow was back at the time Uh, and he doesn't know exactly what the heart of winter will be uh, only that there is something called that uh, and so on and so forth martin is a gardener he plants seeds and he sees how they will grow so this chapter is more or less a proof of concept or however you might want to call it which will allow him to do things further on it reminds me a lot about the empire strikes back uh, the Star Wars movie, in which you find this uh, reference when uh, Luke goes off to Bespin to rescue Han and everyone else. Uh, and then um, Yoda and Obi-Wan Kenobi have a little chat. Uh, and Yoda says, uh, he's our only hope. And Obi-Wan says, no, there is another or the other way around. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, but this there is another line. No one, including Lucas at the time, knew who the other was. They simply didn't know it was future proving, and Lucas admitted that much. Um, he wrote, uh, he he said later, th- this was basically just for the uh, for the sequel, so we could do something in case we didn't get Mark Hamill again. Uh, and something similar is happening here, obviously without actors and with a much better writer. Um, but what Martin is doing here is the same thing. He sees stuff that can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. And we see this with so many scenes, like the dreamers impaled on the spikes. We have not yet developed at all the concept of green seeing. Jojen and Mira are still in the future. They are not invented yet. Um, The whole thing, how it exactly works, is up for grasp. Um, The only thing that we know is other people have dreamt uh, like Bran and died uh, during this and only over the course of the following books became it more apparent what it is actually about and this i find fascinating just from a writing perspective and the same goes uh, for uh, those shadows that he sees you know the one with the terrible face of a hound okay that's clear the golden uh, armor and beautiful as the sun that's jamie lannister obviously and then we have the giant armored in stone which is still unclear to this point. And if you tell me that Martin knew while he was still planning for Winterfell to be sacked by Tyrion, that Gregor Clegane would lose his head and be reanimated in the Winds of Winter, I call foul. I'm sorry. But we can interpret all of this stuff, and maybe Martin does too. I don't know how the writing process works here. Um, But there is such a lot of potential uh, in all of this, which makes interpreting... Bran's dream from A Game of Thrones so especially problematic. Because if we look at the House of the Undying, from there on, Martin has a much clearer grasp of what he wants to do. He still wants to send uh, Danny to a shy, but more or less, the rest of the story is much closer to what it later became. But in A Game of Thrones, we do not have that. And this is the only chapter really um, shining outwards uh, into the other books, and so it becomes fascinating to me that it is interpretable at all. Uh, you know, it, it just speaks to the level of openness uh, that he managed to get in all this wild imagery that this works. Because in with so many other writers, this would just be an artifact that either has to be ignored or explained away somehow or something. But here, it works. And this is just, Wow. I I really appreciate this. I do too. And I think it's certainly one of the
1: chapters in Game of Thrones, a Game of Thrones that is um, a fan maker, you know? And I think we may have talked about this a bit um, in the episode we did when about Bran getting thrown from the tower in the first place, which I selected as a greatest hit because it was the part that made me be like, Oh, Wow whoa, I'm reading, I'm really reading something here. Um, Like, you know, as I've said a million times, I learned very early on by accident that Ned dies at the end um, through no fault of anyone's own. It was an honest mistake by a coworker who I like a lot. So it's no big deal. Um, So, you know, that that was sort of taken away from me. And I'm sure if I had gotten to that and had no idea, my mind would have been as blown as it was by the Red Wedding or whatever. But I remember getting to that, page. It was like page 80 in the edition that I have and Bran falling from the tower and just being like, oh my fucking God, they just threw a child from the tower. I thought he was dead and it turns out he wasn't, but this really doesn't matter because they wind up building something much more interesting out of him not being dead. Um, But it it just showed that it was a, a book that was willing to do things that I didn't think books like this did. And it was a fan maker. And I think that this chapters of Fan Maker 2. It is... The writing is so vivid. It is so unusual for what we have already come to expect from the novel and the setting. And it sets up so many seeds for the future that won't be paid off. Even though, as you say, they won't be... It's setting up seeds for the future that don't even exist yet. Because um, Martin hasn't thought of them yet. Martin has... Martin is conceiving of things in a whole different way. And you see that several times throughout this book, honestly. You know, like, there's all kinds of ways to explain away why uh, the direwolves growl at Tyrion when he shows back up at Winterfell. You know, we know what the reason was, is because Martin thought Tyrion was going to destroy Winterfell or whatever. You know, nowadays we can be like, oh, well, you know, they, they resonate with the emotional frequency of their owners, and so... Since Rob didn't trust Tyrion, you know, neither did uh, Gray Wind, and and so on. Whatever the the stuff, just it just wasn't planned yet. Um, so to throw this in there, make it a central part of the architecture of the future of the series that you have some idea of, but you know, winds up changing so much, and then to have it maintain its its um its structural integrity for lack of a better word you know um and and still hold up and resonate and offer new mysteries all these years later and all these book all these pages later um it's very impressive work and you don't need to know any of that to be grabbed by it you can simply be grabbed by the writing and um the sort of the metaphor of flight and the mysteries of it and just the sheer epic fantasiness of it and it's it 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 it's so uh vivid and singular within the context of this book the same as 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 the tower of joy another greatest hit that we've we've talked about um that i think was uh, has a serves a similar purpose and has a similar effect and is similarly a fan maker, the kind of thing that makes you love the book. And this is the kind of chapter that makes
0: you love the book that it's in. Totally, totally. I want to just randomly make uh, open another topic because I don't have anything to add on what you said, which is once again, The Dreamers. Uh, I think we have to thank mostly poor Quentin uh, for a analysis on that, because this is more or less his special jam. Uh, but he wrote a few years ago when he was still active on Tumblr uh, and on making the most successful <laughs> Summer of Ice and Fire podcast on the airwaves. No jealousy there. Um, then he wrote a, a series about the interactions between Bloodraven and... Um, he were on crow's eye because you were on crow's eye is his big topic uh, but bran's dream came up in this context and he linked the two together it was his theory that um, blood raven had tried what he does with bran here several times before this is the impaled dreamers basically uh, and that he failed every time uh, um, he tried it up until bran and the only one to survive the experience uh, was, in his view, uh, Euron eye, who, uh, who then is basically the, uh, the lost pupil, like the Darth Vader of the story, um, who, who goes rogue, uh, who sees the heart of winter and does not think like Bran. Oh my God, this is totally terrifying and, uh, and awful and I can't look, but he is looking and he thinks, this is beautiful, I want to join these people. Uh, it's a very convincing theory and what I like about it is just what it says about the three-eyed crow because we have someone who is willing to infiltrate to no to penetrate is the right word here to penetrate the dreams of children and to try to make them into child soldiers in an inter uh, plane global war against ice zombies, which is so detestable on moral grounds because Bran is molded into a child soldier here. And we see the beginnings of this in uh, A Dance with Dragons. I I do not think we are supposed to cheer it on. It might be a necessity. It might be the only thing uh, rescuing us from uh, the apocalypse. But we do not have stan is torturing himself uh several chapters over the question if the life of one boy is uh is worth it to rescue the world if this wouldn't have thematic resonance in another chapter and the impaled dreamers are pointing to this very thing because blood raven definitely answered the question with yes he is the ultimate machiavellist Uh, i mean this guy has no moral qualms whatsoever what he perceives as necessary for the greater good He does. Oh, uh, no, he's a utilitarian, uh, not a Machiavellist, sorry. Uh, When something is the best for the greater good, he will absolutely do it. And he perceives uh, the creation of the ultimate child soldier as the only thing that helps. Uh, He wants to create this... There's one person that uh, he has to weed out. We get the numbers from Jojen. Like one in a thousand uh, is, um, is, a, uh, is a warwick and one in the thousand warwick is a green seer or something like that. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think it's in that ballpark. And that means so many killed people, so many destroyed potentials, uh, basically, be, because Bran is seeing a lot of impaled bodies there. I do not want to know how often Bloodraven tried over all these decades in which he has become a tree uh, to mold someone uh, into this force uh, that, he's, uh, that he's making. And he is increasingly becoming desperate because now the heart of winter or whatever it is has awakened uh, and he needs his pupil now or it is too late. And so Bran is the most powerful disciple that he has and the most promising, but he is also their last hope. And no Obi-Wan, there is no other so that is the thing i wanted to say about this i don't know if you have anything to add
1: no not really not on that um uh yeah you, hmm. i guess i would just say that that what goes on with bran is in miniature what's basically going on with the whole of the seven kingdoms and basically the planet in macro like blood raven um you know, he's not omnipotent. There, there's a limit to what he can engineer and what he can do. Um, you know, obviously, a lot of this stuff is happening without his involvement at all. But he's certainly um, a strategic thinker and he's willing to sacrifice a whole lot to save the planet. And to save the human race, so by that standard, like what's a few kids, right? Um, it's it's a tough question that the book asks, and it makes a lot of the it complicates the good versus evil thing, which I think is Martin's intent. Bottom line, um, he wanted to make an epic fantasy where. I, you know the idea that it's all shades of gray and there's no good and no evil in these books is bunk and I I won't entertain it it's silly but he does complicate the good and evil thing and will continue to do so you know i mean he's promised that there will be a reason why the others are the way they are and maybe we saw it in the game of thrones tv show or maybe we didn't you know who knows but um it he You know, he he was clear from the jump that it's not going to be just because they're pure evil. Uh, which is not to say that they're not ultimately evil. Um, just that it's never going to be quite that simple. And so, Bloodraven is not Gandalf, to put it mildly. Um, not at all. Bloodraven is a little bit more like if Saruman had stayed on the side of good, but was still, if, still Saruman at heart and did all kinds of shitty things to defeat Sauron in the end. Um, It's an an interesting spin on that archetype. Which is the thing you can say over and over and over again about a million characters in these books. They're interesting novel revisionist spins on tried and true fantasy archetypes.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And now I don't have anything to add. I mean, we are really going to um, miss transitions here, which is our hallmark. Man, we are dropping the ball here. But yeah. Um... Again, agreed on uh, on everything you're saying. Do we have something else in this chapter to talk about? Um, because I'm not quite sure. Let me just uh, real quick uh, check. We have the whole thing about uh, learning to fly, but I think that metaphor is cleared up. Um, uh, it is not really something that needs to be done uh, anymore. Flying is obviously something that is um, metaphorical. Uh, Bran will not fly himself. Maybe he will walk into a dragon, he will definitely walk into birds, so um, he's going to fly in this sense. Uh, We have the three shadows that we talked about. Uh, He sees dragons steering in the fabled Shadowlands. That's a shy, and I think that is something, one of the artifacts uh, of the chapter, uh, because there are no living dragons. That is other than Danny's, uh, that is by now more or less confirmed. It can, once again, because of the great structure of this chapter, be explained away as a vision uh, of the past or maybe of the future, but it is not what is happening now. And uh, since it is written in the context of looking at things that are actually happening, you know, seeing his mother on the ship, uh, seeing John sleeping alone, uh, and then looking beyond the wall, it seems like there are really dragons beyond the shy. So... I don't know what to make of this uh, i think it is just one of the things he seeded for when he sent denny there which then doesn't happen and then we have the whole thing uh, about choosing um, and blood raven says to bran he needs to choose to either fly or uh, to um would you fall and die which is not really a choice, Blood Raven, you know. Um, so what he is doing is he, he, he is forcing Bran willfully on this next plane of existence. Once again, the child soldier thing. He is telling him in no unclear terms, either you become what I want you to become or you die right here, uh, right now. And this is harsh, man. And Bran is spreading his wings, and then uh, and then he is flying. Uh, and then suddenly the, the crow packs at his, uh, at his forehead, and he falls down. And I mean, the falling metaphor uh, with Bran is especially strong. He dreams of falling, and he doesn't remember his, uh, his own fall. And of course, he was incredibly high up there uh, for his bird's eye view of everything. So that comes together metaphorically. And then, one last thought, the chapter ends with him waking up. And he is saying, uh, he's looking calmly up uh, and says uh, about his wolf, his name is Summer. Which is beautiful, because Bran is really the only one to name his, uh, his wolf in a... Greater context of things. Everyone else calls their uh, calls their wolves uh, by something that relates to the character themselves. Uh, Rob with Grey Wind, uh, John with Ghost. These are just cool badass names. Then you have uh, Sansa with Lady because that is what she is. You have Arya with Nymeria because that's who she finds cool. Uh, that's also badass. And then you have um, Shaggy Dog because I mean, Rickon is a small boy, um, and it is a fun inside meta joke. But Bran calls his wolf Summer, uh, which is the, uh, the season in which you actually live, which is opposed to the cold winter. He looked into the heart of winter and decides to call his wolf Summer. That's a nice touch. Even if he does not remember what he saw in the dream, the emotions and the deeper knowledge, if that makes any sense, stayed with him. I'm so glad you singled that out
1: because it's a magnificent close to the, epi- to the episode. Gosh, to the chapter I remember being really. Uh, it hit me real hard, um, because you know, I you, you recognize in that moment with that one word that that Bran is going to be the force arrayed against Winter, right? He is <clears throat> whatever he remembers of the dream, or or whatever he's able to understand as a kid, a little kid. Um, some part of him knows that it will be his mission to stop the winter. So he names his Wolf Summer, which is the antithesis of winter. And uh, I remember being like, I just thought it's a beautiful, it gives you chills. It's a, a, a beautiful, almost musical moment, almost lyrical moment. Uh, I really, really think it's impressive. It's the perfect way to end that chapter. It feels like the only inevitable way to end that chapter. It's really, really terrific. And I do miss, I think that the, um, the show handled Bran waking up as, as well as it could at the end of the second episode, you know, timed with with Lady's execution. It's a good way to handle it. Um, the way it comes across in this chapter is really something else. It's really...
0: Yeah, the show couldn't do that.
1: Very, very, right, the show couldn't do it. it. It was a very, very moving moment. And I'm also glad you brought up the dragons in Asha'i because I still don't know what to make of that and it may be just that you're right it's an artifact of his early plans to bring Danny to Ashai which he has since abandoned um but it's weird because by the end of this book he makes it seem like Danny's dragons are the only 3 in the world throughout the book he makes it seem that way so i don't really know what he was after or what he was about with this like i it's it's a little bit confusing to me even if the intention was to send danny to ashai and have her find some dragons there um but you know it's not it's not all as neat as it seems you know like there was magic going on before the dragons reawakened um very clearly this dream being a case in point so it's not quite as neat as the dragons Are reborn and magic reawakens. Things were already going down. Things were already heading in that direction before the dragons hatched. Um, It's it's just it's a curiosity, and if it winds up being you know an anomalous thing like um, that, can be fun too. It can it can be fun to try and win a no prize, which is you know for people who aren't huge comic nerds. Back in the day, when Marvel Comics still had like letter columns in the back of each issue. Um, when there was a mistake or a goof or a, con- a, a real obvious continuity error, what people would do is they would write in to Marvel and say like, hey, I figured out why this actually makes sense. And they'd have some ridiculous explanation that was technically um, feasible. And the editors would be like, hey, congratulations, you win a no prize. And they would send them an envelope with no prize inside. That's why it was called a no prize. And so, like, can you come up with a no prize for why there are dragons in Asha'i, even though the, the dragons that Danny hatches are the first dragons in hundreds of years? Um, yeah, you could. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's just one of those fun little curly cues in the narrative at this, at this point. Who knows what will happen in the future? You know, we now know for various reasons that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in these people's philosophy, you know, like there's the continent full of wyverns, you know what I'm saying? Like we didn't know that Martin didn't know that when he wrote this. So it's just one of, it it reminds me a little bit of my theory that like um, the red Viper was poisoning Tywin Lannister before they both died. Um, It doesn't matter really. It's just one of those fun things to think about. And you can come up with a, a, um, you can come up with an explanation that does not affect the integrity of the the story whatsoever. Which is why I always enjoyed my theory about the red viper poisoning Tywin, because whether he did or he didn't, it doesn't make a difference. Like that's the problem with a lot of theories, right? And we've talked about this a million times. Like a lot of theories, it's like, well, if that was if that were true, you'd be changing like the nature of the story. You'd be changing the meaning of the story. You'd have to rework some really important things. And so even if it could technically be true, it doesn't work for a million reasons. And, you know, I I think this is a fairly harmless, um, you know, artifact of the um, relict structure of the series that was since abandoned by Martin. But it's fun. I like that it's in there. It gives me food for thought even now.
0: So... Why not? Totally true. I don't have anything to add, I'm afraid. So if you have a closing statement on the chapter, this would be the place else uh, we can call it a day?
1: No, let's call it a day. I mean, I think it's a really, really fun chapter to talk about. Obviously, I had a good time on this podcast. And, um, it, you know, it is a chapter, I think, as we've both established, it just keeps on giving. And no matter how far afield the story winds up from what Martin was thinking the story would be when he wrote this chapter, the chapter still holds up. The chapter still holds its own. The chapter is still something that you can
0: return to time and again and feel that magic that you felt that first time absolutely true so we hope you enjoy this chapter and this series of podcasts as much as we do as always jump on the discord if you want or comment on uh, below this post let us know what you think you can write us on twitter you know the whole drill and thank you all for supporting us if you do and for listening to us even if you don't and we see you next time bye-bye bye If you like this podcast, you can support us via PayPal at paypal.me slash boyleather or you go over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash leather audio hour. Patreon offers many subscription tiers, which give you early access to episodes, the possibility to weigh in on topic choices, bonus podcasts like the Boiled Leather Audio Moment or the Boiled Leather Audio Conversation, and of course, the possibility to be mentioned right in the beginning of every podcast. Hop over to patreon.com slash Boiled Leather Audio Hour or contribute over PayPal at paypal.me slash Boiled Leather.